Good morning, Vermont, and welcome to the Tuesday edition of Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. I'm Brad Wright. Coming up in just a moment, we're going to speak with James Pepper, who is the chairman of the Vermont Cannabis Control Board. It has a new proposal bef- uh, before the legislature about how to handle the potency of certain types of marijuana. If you haven't heard about this, you will want to listen in. Later this hour, we plan to have Ted Brady, the executive director of the Vermont League of Cities and Towns, to discuss how towns that have been flooded in the past several months can get out from under this very vexing problem. Towns need help with that and also housing, too. Vermonters got quite a wake-up call when they found out late last year that the disappearance of federal COVID relief dollars, well, they might be looking at an 18% increase in the already really high property tax. But what do you do if you are of the opinion that the tax department isn't treating you fairly? We will speak with Jeff Dooley, who is the Vermont Taxpayer Advocate. And after those two uh, really hefty conversations, uh, three, maybe three hefty conversations, it's time for a little humor. During the pandemic, when many comedy clubs had to close, video conferencing facilitated the online comedy business. We will speak with comedian Walter Gottlieb about that. But our first guest is uh, indeed Mr. James Pepper, chair of the Vermont Cannabis Control Board. He joins us in the studio. Jim, welcome. Hey, thank you for having me. It's a real honor. Uh, so one of the changes in current law that you're asking the General Assembly to approve would eliminate caps on the potency of certain strains that can be sold in the recreational market. Why is this a good idea? So this is an area that the board, which is, you know, three unelected commissioners, generally doesn't weigh in on. Um, This is a policy decision that the legislature has made. Um, However, it's a perennial issue. Uh, we legalized cannabis uh, for home grow in 2018. We did tax and regulate with the first retail sales in 2022. And um, the legislature left in place certain potency caps, both on smokable flour, on solid concentrates, and then kind of on serving size and package limits. And one of our missions at the board is to attempt to shift the what's known as the legacy or illicit market into a regulated space for the purpose of consumer health and public safety. We believe strongly that um, consumers deserve a choice between going to the kind of traditional uh, legacy market or, or illicit market or uh, alternatively having a product that's been tested, it's been labeled properly, you know what's in it, and importantly, you can have an exchange of information at the point of sale with the consumer about the potential negative side effects Meanwhile, you can reinvest some of the tax revenue that you're collecting at that sale in trying to talk to kids in a positive way about the actual effects of using cannabis. So we see this as kind of a a better approach, a safer approach, a harm reductionist approach to what we know are people using these products anyway. Right. Uh, Sounds like the medical community is not loving this. No, this is a perennial issue. Um, you know, it was debated intensely when the original tax, tax and regulate bill was being contemplated. We've been asked to look at it, the efficacy of these caps um, year after year after year. We've submitted uh, numerous reports to the legislature about um, how dangerous it, is, dangerous it is to produce these in a kind of non-fire safety regulated setting, you know, in a garage or in your kitchen. 
and um, you know how dangerous the kind of leftover materials that are still in that concentrate after you've tried to kind of put it through an, an extractor. Um, that being said, you know the, the flip side of this argument. I mean, the dividing lines are very clear. The flip side is, is you know, legalizing these, lifting the caps would normalize these products, um, potentially lead to kind of a decrease in the perception of harm of them, and also potentially increase their accessibility amongst the people that they are dangerous for. You know, the developing adolescent brain. You know, these can have long-term consequences, and there are some unknowns around other health implications of using them. So uh, the uh, increased potency uh, is better sold at um, uh, a, a legal uh, uh, place of trade because um, you, you have a better chance of keeping it away from underage people. I mean, that's what – that's what – that's our basic premise always is that, is that um, trying to, you know, the hallmarks of a regulated system, checking people's IDs at the door, you know, having a label that's accurate, that tells you what's in it, that the manufacturing processes that, that created that product were safe, that there's no contaminants, adulterants that are left in that product. And then again, there can be, um, you know, a conversation about, you know, how to use this product appropriately, who it's for, who it's not for um, at that point of sale. 802-244-1777 is the number to call if you would like to ask a question of Jim Pepper, the uh, chair of the Vermont Cannabis Control Board. Um, other parts of your request uh, before the legislature actually limit the sale of other hemp-derived products. Uh, what are we talking about there? Yeah, so... Uh this is a – hopefully I don't put anyone to sleep with this one. Um, <laughs> there's a so, – so marijuana as it's defined in the Controlled Substance Act uh, is a Schedule One controlled substance. It's the, the most restrictive. It's in the same schedule as heroin and LSD. In 2018, you know, in response to a lot of farmers and, and a lot of people saying we want to grow the same plant, marijuana, cannabis – um, but we want to do it for not the intoxicating THC. We want to do it for fiber or seed or for, um, you know, CBD, importantly, which has shown some real therapeutic potential. Sure. Um, so they, the legislature, I mean, the Congress uh, created this legal fiction that this same plant would be uh, not on the schedule at all, so totally legal, if it maintained a very strict threshold of low THC, 0.3% of the entire dry weight. So as long as you grow low THC cannabis, it's considered hemp and it's federally legal and it's governed under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And, um, but if it's above that, then it's a Schedule One controlled substance, federally illegal and, you know, only available. So what, what you know, 2018 was a simpler time. We didn't know at that time about all of the other intoxicating cannabinoids other than THC that are in the cannabis plant. We didn't know about all the manufacturing processes that can be applied to CBD to convert it into synthetic derivatives like Delta-8, Delta-10, THCO. These are all intoxicating, especially when they're concentrated. And so, of course, you know, in the absence of any sort of real regulation over hemp, um, people have been growing fields and fields of hemp, you know, can, you know, taking out all the biomass, leaving just the THC, and then they're putting it into edibles and um, they're converting it into Delta-8 THC, putting it into vape cartridges. And the claim of the um, 
manufacturers is this is totally legal and I don't have to check anyone's ID to sell it to them. I don't have to test it. I don't have to abide by any state regulatory framework around cannabis because this is a hemp derivative. Um, And so that's what we're seeing. I mean, you know, this major industry has developed alongside the cannabis industry. They're, it's interstate commerce. They're shipping products through the mail. You can buy them online. You can sell them to kids. Uh, mm. They're available in gas stations. And um, and so really, you know, every state is grappling with this. A lot of states are just banning this stuff outright. And then there's lawsuits about, you know, federal preemption and the Commerce Clause. And um, we're trying to take a, a rational approach, create a definition for what an intoxicating hemp-derived product is, and then um, – if it's an intoxicating hemp-derived product, the cannabis regulatory framework applies. If it's not, if it's a high CBD tincture and there's no THC in it or minimal THC, then just have it be a normal dietary supplement, you know? Yeah. Uh, in other states, I've seen uh, Delta-8 advertised in smoke shops, even in places where the sale of recreational marijuana is not allowed. Oh, yeah. Um but Delta-8 uh, somehow is under the radar, under the legal radar. Um, what's the difference between Delta-8 and Delta-9? So Delta-8 exists in very, very small amounts, very trace amounts in the cannabis plant. But the main way that you get a Delta-8 uh, product is you convert uh, CBD, you apply some chemical processes to CBD and convert it into Delta-8. There's not a lot known about it. I mean, this is not a product that is studied. There's, you know, there's no kind of longitudinal randomized clinical trials about the human interactions. There is a very recent article from a um, from a researcher out in Portland State University who studies inhalation of cannabinoids, and he said that concentrated delta eight forms a poisonous gas, a toxic gas, when it's vaporized. Um, and so, you know. These things are dangerous. Um, we're running an experiment in places like Texas and Tennessee that don't have uh, adult use stores, and they're using these kind of hemp, hemp-derived intoxicating products that um, are theoretically legal um, as as the alternative. They're, that's their market, and so we're we're seeing the the effects of these things. A lot of states have just started banning them. The the, legis- the the Vermont legislature gave us this cannabis control board authority over all the synthetic um, hemp, hemp derivatives or cannabis derivatives, and we, through administrative rule, created a um, process. I mean, we banned the synthetics, and then, and then, the, of course, the, the the problem that we have this bill um, H six twelve is, while we've banned them through administrative rule, there is a um, in the agricultural statutes, there's a definition of hemp-derived product that could theoretically capture some of these synthetics, um, and we needed to close that that gap. You know, the, that, the, the agricultural statute relies on the federal definition, which again has this kind of loophole in it. And so um, while, you know, we have an administrative rule that says these are not safe and they shouldn't be allowed, mm-hmm. um, there's a, at least a, a legal argument to be made that, no, the, the agricultural statutes allow them. Okay. Uh, Jim, you, you mentioned in uh, testimony before the legislature that revenue expectations have been exceeded uh, by Vermont's retail industry. How well? 
Yeah, they have been. I, I just by the numbers, um, in the first 13 months of retail sales, uh, we had $97 million in taxable sales. That equates to, with the 14% excise tax, $13.6 million. And then, um, of course, 30% of that 13.6 is dedicated to uh, substance misuse prevention programs around the state. And then $5.8 million in, in the sales tax. And, and all of that money goes directly to the Department of Education, Agency of Education for um, expanding access to after-school programs. And those numbers, while they're pretty much in line with um, what we expected in year two, they um, they vastly exceeded what we expected in year one. And, and again, this is hard to predict at the outset. You know, you never know how many licenses are going to how much entrepreneurial interest there's going to be in, in joining a regulated market and how much of a market capture you're going to get on the consumer side. So, um, you know, I think, I think these, these uh, portend a healthy start to the market, and we'll see where they go from here. I mean, this is not a static market, and, and um, you know, there's all, all sorts of policy choices that the legislature could make that would increase that market capture. Does the fact that New Hampshire still doesn't allow um, legal retail sales uh, uh, help anything? Uh, it, it does. I mean, we built into our models the fact that um, we would kind of hit a high high point while both New York is coming online and they're coming online very slowly. And uh, New Hampshire uh, does not have uh, legal access to, to cannabis. And so that we have these border consumers that are going to come over to Vermont, purchase here, and then go back to either New York or New Hampshire. Yeah. Um, what surprised you the most so far about, about how the sales uh, have gone in the, you know, in, the, in the initial year plus? You know, the, the, the fact that so many people are willing to embrace the regulated market to me is um, a great benefit. Um, you know, we've talked about the benefits of, of having a regulated product. Um, but, you know, of course, Vermont legalized home grow in 2018. You know, cannabis is kind of like the new zucchini, you know, around harvest time. Don't leave your windows open because someone might throw their excess cannabis in it. You know, it's, it's you know, no one that I know of has any problem finding cannabis or accessing it. So, that, what does that mean for reg, for the regulated market? You know, are people actually going to want to go out and purchase cannabis and pay this you know twenty percent premium to do so? Right. And um, you know, the numbers are showing that yes, people do like having kind of a diversity of options. They like the quality. They like having a tested product, you know, uh, it, it certainly adds to the safety, right? I mean, there. Uh, if you if you if you're buying marijuana on the street, you know, fentanyl can get mixed into it, right? I mean, I, I I've heard the, the the myth of that. I, I don't think we have any real evidence of that, especially in Vermont. However, pesticides for sure, um, and you know, adulterants and pet, you know, just molds and mildews, you know. Sure, sure. That's right. You don't want that. Sure. You don't want to ingest right. that stuff. Uh, 802-244-1777 is the number to call if you'd like to ask a question of Jim Pepper, the chair of the Vermont Cannabis Control Board. Um, you were, you were mentioning, you know, you kind of wonder how, how the market is, is going to flourish over time. Um, there was a seven days article recently that seemed to suggest that maybe there were too many retail outlets in, in downtown Burlington which was driving down the price, and it looked like one place might actually close. Um, any concerns there? And, and do you see that happening? Uh, 
This this is a, a serious concern of mine. Um, you know, every board meeting we try and include information about um, the density areas of density of retail. Um, yeah. You know, these are very expensive to start up in in the absence of financing or kind of traditional uh, lending. Um, people are putting up a lot of their own money. They're risking everything, their retirement savings, to start one of these stores. And no, th- there's no way that Burlington in the long run can uh, sustain 13 cannabis retail stores. Um, Is that how many they have now? I think 13. They, they may have, you know, 12 and one in, one is pending or two or, two or three pending. But yeah, I, you know, and it, to me, this is really an outcome of a policy decision that the legislature made, which is that towns are not allowed to host a retail operation until their voters tell them through a, a ballot initiative Yes, we want retail sales in Burlington. Right. And so while there are 13 in Burlington, there is zero in South Burlington and zero in Williston. So you're seeing kind of a, a, a density, a kind of retail density in one part, and it's slightly, it's unnatural. You know, if they, if that presumption were flipped and a town was out, was in until they were out, I'd see, I think you'd see a much broader um, geographic, you know distribution of these stores. Yeah, so the legislature wanted uh, every town to to make a conf- confirming yes, we want this as opposed to we didn't get around to saying no. That's right. And I I honestly, you know, I'm friends with the zoning administrator in South Burlington. They haven't heard much about it. And I and I don't think it's that there's not a demand. I think people just don't know, you know. So I try my best when I'm on, you know, shows like this to remind voters that, hey, if you want, you know, access to regulated cannabis in your town, you got to go and do some advocacy. Yeah. Uh, how would you judge the status of the unregulated market now? Um, and uh, is there any undercutting of the of the legal market? I, th- I think that there is, to answer the second part first, I think there is an undercutting. Um, one of the issues that we have is that while this market is ramping up, the demand for cannabis um, is exceeding the supply, meaning that the price is higher than on the illicit market. And then you also have the cost of the you know regulatory compliance and the 20% baked into the cost of regulated cannabis. So, so the illicit market can always offer a better price. You're getting a better product on the regulated side. Um, and then as far as what's the status of the illicit market, it's, it's always hard to judge that. Um, however, I will say that we were given a mandate in our enabling legislation to attempt to shift the uh, current illicit market, the legacy market as it's called, um, into a regulated space. And we were given tools in our toolbox to, to, to help reduce the barriers to entry for small local farmers and the kind of legacy operators. And if you look at our licensing numbers compared to many other states, it seems like we've been at least somewhat successful in attracting these kind of former illicit market growers into the regulated market. You know, we've issued 560 total licenses so far. 400 of those are for cultivators and 77% of those are for these tier one small cultivators that are people growing on a thousand square feet of canopy or less, you know, and and those really are the former illicit market. You know, they've decided to kind of take this leap of faith with us and, and join this market and bring their products to the regulated stores. Um, the New York Times reported last week that FDA scientists have recommended officially 
that the drug enforcement agency should remove marijuana from Schedule 1 and place it on Schedule 3, um, which is the list that uh, – like ketamine and testosterone uh, are, are on. These are prescription drugs. Um, if the DEA follows the recommendation, what could the, the effect be on Vermont's retail business? So the the immediate effect is not incredibly dramatic. Um, you know, the, the the major consequence of a um, a, a product being Schedule Three as opposed to Schedule One from a practical business standpoint is that these businesses that um, are operating in Vermont will be able to write off all of their business expenses on their federal tax returns, which is immediate money in their pocket. I think the more um, dramatic impact of what uh, Health and Human Services Agency said to the DEA was that there are medical applications for cannabis. I don't think that should surprise many people. We have 38 states um, that have medical programs. Sure. And we have, you know, over 6 million medical patients in the United States that are using cannabis for therapeutic purposes. But for the federal government to say that um, is a big deal. And they've they've identified several conditions where marijuana has or cannabis has shown to be an effective treatment. These are anorexia, nausea related to kind of chemotherapy and um, pain. So so that the Agency of Health and Human Services acknowledging that um, there are potential therapeutic uses for cannabis and that the risk of dependence is low um, is a big step forward. Yeah. Um, DEA um, has been uh, unalterably opposed to this, making this change in the past. Um, and uh, what do you do? You've you know, been around D.C. for a while. What do you think they're going to do? Well, if history is any um, indication of future performance, um, the last time they rescheduled something and they moved uh, something up a schedule, it took them 10 years uh, from the time they received this HHS report to the time they actually moved it. So I'm not holding my breath (laughs) for anything going on in in Washington, but um, it does seem like it's an important acknowledgement by regardless of what happens, an important acknowledgement from the Health and Human Services. Could be a risky political move for almost anybody, too. Absolutely. Yeah, especially in an election year. Uh, Jim, thank you so much. Jim Pepper, the chair of the Vermont uh, Cannabis Control Board, thanks for being with us. This is Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoints. I'm Brad Wright. The cities and towns across Vermont that have suffered through two flooding events in the last several months are still in a tough spot because the financial hit they've taken has been pretty tough and they are looking for state help. Uh, Ted Brady is the executive director of the Vermont League of Cities and Towns, and his organization lobbies the legislature in order to influence legislation that will help municipalities. Ted, welcome. Hey, good morning, Brad. Thanks for having me, and thanks for caring about the financial plight of our towns. Well, we uh, we all live in one, uh, and so we all have a stake in that. Um, and uh, I I think it's... Uh, a really important conversation to have, um, and um, 
the way towns are involved uh, with the state in terms of the regulatory and legal environment is really important for townspeople to understand. And we're not uh, we're not really that far away from town meeting day either. Um, but uh, this year, at least, VLCT's mission is to help municipalities increase revenue and capacity. I saw that on your website. Uh, can you can you kind of explain what that means uh, before we get into the whole flooding conversation? Yeah, of course. I think what we see continually happening across uh, the state is towns are being asked to do more, and they're being asked to do more with less. And, and that that means the legislature uh, continually says, "Hey, towns, you have to do this. You know, you have to worry about river corridors. You have to." worry about disaster planning. You have to, you know, worry about short-term rentals. Go down a long list of things. And meanwhile, uh, our cities and towns have not been given a penny more to do that. Um, a good example, uh, you know, look at our how, how we fund our towns. They are funded almost entirely on the property tax. As the education fund has swollen, and as the education fund has grown and education tax pressure has grown, our town's ability to even raise more revenue by raising their own taxes has become almost impossible. So what we're advocating for is uh, the, the, the state of Vermont, like every state surrounding us, every state that touches us has a revenue sharing program that actually shares some of the sales tax, shares some of the other revenue sources that they receive with the towns to help them meet the transportation needs, the public safety needs, the climate resiliency needs that they have. So that's the revenue side. The capacity side, you know, we've got 247 cities and towns in Vermont. Of those 247 cities and towns, only about 100 have professional managers or administrators helping select boards actually do the job, which means in the other 100 or so, you know, it's oftentimes the clerk the uh, part-time planning and zoning administrator that's, you know, putting things together and, and, and making sure that the town is being held together in between those biweekly meetings that the select board has. So those towns need some capacity if we expect their residents of those towns to be able to, uh, to be able to kind of have access to public safety, to be safe from flooding, all those types of things. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about uh, focusing really on revenue and capacity this year for municipalities. Let's get to flooding. Um, uh, a lot of towns are uh, still really recovering. Uh, you know, today is a cold day. It's below freezing. It's uh, it was a little bit of snow falling. Um, so um, you know, uh, flooding not an issue uh, right now, except for those towns that are um, still kind of in the recovery mode. Um, what? What is the most important thing to do for Vermont towns that um, are still recovering from uh, the summer's flood and the one perhaps that happened uh, in December in, in fewer places? Um, what, what's happening there? Yeah, you know, right now we're just a, a few weeks, you know, less than two months out from town meeting day. Our municipalities, every city and town in Vermont, they put together their budgets uh, their select boards are, you know, approving those budgets to send them to, to the voters for town meeting day. And, you know, a, a plurality of our towns have unexpected expenses because of the flooding. And uh, in my opinion, it's adding insult to injury for the state to say, uh, okay, you folks suffered the flooding this year. 
your residents were put out of their homes, your businesses were closed. Um, now you have a budget hole. Good luck fixing that budget hole on your own. That, that seems unfair to me. If you look at a place like Barrie, right? The city of Barrie, they're, they have about a one and a half million dollar budget deficit this year. That's, you know, that's a lot of money in a budget of about 14 million bucks. Uh, you know, more than 10% of their budget, about 10% of their budget uh, is missing. <laughs> and that's because you know, 360 homes were impacted uh, by the flooding. Uh, 90 received substantial damage determinations, meaning they're more than 50% damaged. Their grand list is dropping 3.6% of the flooding. And a lot of those property owners are going to ask for buyouts. So this might not just be a one-year budget gap. This could be a multi-year budget gap. So I look at a place like Barry and I say to the uh, legislature and to the governor, I say, let's recognize that they did nothing wrong. <laughs> they were on the wrong spot on a map for flooding this summer. So let's not make their taxpayers shoulder the burden of that $1.5 million alone. Let's not make them cut firefighters. Let's not make them cut you know, uh, public uh, recreation uh, workers. Let's not make them cut plow drivers so that they can pay for the damage of the flood. I think the state should show up and fund some of uh, some of their effort. We should collectively, as Vermonters, help these communities that have been disproportionately impacted by the flooding by helping them plug their budgets this year. Uh, when you make that request uh, to the governor and to the uh, the General Assembly, what are you hearing back from them? Yeah, I think any of your listeners know what I'm hearing back. It's we don't have any money anymore. Uh, and my response to that is, well, the town's never had money. <laughs> so uh, we really do need some help this year. And as the as the legislature puts together its budget, you know, in the governor's budget request, I'm certainly hoping that they recognize this is small money in a in a budget of eight billion dollars. Uh, we're talking, you know, five to ten million dollars to make these towns whole. We as Vermonters can shoulder that burden, should shoulder that burden. The feds aren't going to make up every penny of this disaster. The state needs to help these towns make up some of it. What has been the federal uh, contribution to that? We know FEMA uh, was here uh, and they did um, uh, a fair amount of work, uh, but it is not FEMA's job to make everybody whole. So um, uh, what was the federal contribution to uh, trying to uh, improve the situation and uh, uh, was it just, uh, you know, $10 million less than what we need, or is, or is it more complicated than that? Yeah. Brad, you know it's more complicated, right? Yeah. We don't actually know yet, and this is part of the anxiety. Uh, the numbers that we've seen show about $600 million worth of something called public assistance eligible projects. These are FEMA projects. Things like your road gets washed out, the town goes to fix it. That would be a, a FEMA-eligible public assistance project. Things like the pavilion building in Montpelier gets flooded. Those are FEMA-eligible projects. Of that $600 million of eligible projects, about $200 million of those were on town infrastructure. So things like town roads, things like town halls. Uh, sewer plants, things along those lines. So, yeah, I mean, okay. every, everybody saw the video of um, uh, gravel roads being blown out, bridges, uh, uh, you know, being blown out or, or damaged badly. Um, 
is, uh, I mean, you know, we're just at the start of the legislative session, um, and there's already talk of a major Medicaid expansion, which, uh, sounds like it's, uh, gonna cost a lot of money. Uh, but, but people in Vermont towns, uh, probably would benefit from that too. Um, what's the competitive environment like for you as you, as you talk to legislators? Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of pressures. And for most of the people in the legislature this year, this is the first budget. I shouldn't say most, a plurality of the people in the legislature this year. This is the first budget year they've ever had where they had to make hard choices because there isn't largesse. There isn't federal largesse coming in. And, and we're, I think people are very sympathetic to the town's plight. And they need to be reminded because, in general, people understand, one, this is small money. So of that $200 million in federal money, uh, we think that towns are going to be on the hook for about 10% of that. So you're talking $20 million, right? A $20 million match. That's the local match of that FEMA project uh, that, that towns have to come up with. Um, the people seem to be sympathetic. I want to share one other story that just kind of, I think, shows why they're sympathetic. In Chester, sure. uh, they, they had $2.3 million of damage in Chester, 89 separate FEMA projects, 89 pieces of paperwork they have to do. Uh, that $2.3 million required Chester to borrow almost $2 million using a current expense note, which is just a loan at a, you know, five, seven percent interest rate. That's on a town that has a $3.7 million budget. You know, that's an enormous <laughs> piece of new debt. So people are very sympathetic. Why should the residents of Chester have to shoulder that burden alone. I think people get that, uh, that we're all in this together. Yeah. Um, Ted Brady of the uh, Vermont League of Cities and Towns is our guest. Uh, we will be continue to speak with him after the break. Um, we uh, do want to hear from you, the listener, about uh, what Vermont League of Cities and Towns can do in their dealings with the Vermont legislature in order to help the towns heal from these very tough flooding events. Uh, Ted, um uh, we do hope, uh, by the way, that we uh, we get a couple of listener calls to because uh, we, you know, what do you think? Uh, you know, what are you going to say at town meeting about uh, what's what how your town is dealing um, with the rec- flood recovery effort? Uh, uh, Ted, uh, do we know much about um, uh, what insurance might have done to help uh, towns uh, navigate this uh, f- flood recovery issue? Yeah, you're asking the right guy. So uh, some folks might not know this, but the Vermont League of Cities and Towns uh, is the property casualty and liability insurer for 95% of the municipalities in the state of Vermont. Uh, we absolutely do. I, I think, uh, you know, you, the insurance covers uh, quite a bit of damage, and uh, we have more than $10 million of damage across the state that we think uh, is eligible for coverage. Uh, and then there's a bunch of stuff that's not eligible for coverage because you simply can't insure some things, things that are in, you know, floodways, things that are really high risk properties. And that's where FEMA comes in. FEMA makes up the difference between the insurable loss, um, uninsured loss and, and the, the cost of, of, of the project. So, uh, absolutely. We, we have a picture of that. Uh, you know, I think I heard Doug Farnham say in, in committee testimony that he thinks there's about $900 million of damage in the state of Vermont. Uh, that's to private and public infrastructure. And so they take that $600 million worth of damage that occurred, plus 
you know, the, the difference, 300 million, so $300 million worth of insurable damage that's happening across the, across the state of Vermont. It's, a, it's really an overwhelming number. Is, uh, what is the status of that? Is, uh, will the town see, uh, some financial relief from their, uh, insurer any, anytime soon? Yeah, absolutely. We've, uh, so here at the league, we've already started paying, we, we started making payments, uh, within a couple of weeks of the disaster, advanced payments. And uh, like any claim, you know, it takes several months or sometimes years to, to fully settle a claim. But uh, towns are receiving checks and being uh, and putting that money to work rebuilding as we speak. So let's say two years from now, where are where do you think the uh, the, the flood damage towns are, are going to be? Uh, what, what kind of condition will they be in? Yeah, well, I think some, a lot of towns will be fully rebuilt, right? And if we're lucky, a lot of towns will have resiliency measures underway. So putting in bigger culverts, you know, uh, doing buyouts of homes, doing buyouts of properties that are flooding, and commercial businesses that would flood again. So, you know, you hope within two years we're looking at a, a, a different world there in these smaller towns that were impacted. I think some of these larger towns, you look at a Barrie, you look at a Johnson, uh, you look at a Hardwick. You know, these folks have wastewater systems, one of the most important things to economic development in their towns that are sitting pretty much in the river. <laughs> and I think you're looking at several years worth of design and implementation and tens of millions of dollars to, to flood harden these facilities or in many cases to fully move them. So I think some of these communities will be really uh, working hard. And if the legislature doesn't show up with some money this year, I think some of these towns could be looking at carrying debt for quite some time to pay off some of the uh, improvements that need to be made. So let's hope that the the legislature comes through this year. And in the meantime, we could get more floods. Why why do you have to say that? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, uh, it's absolutely right. Uh, Absolutely. Just around the corner any, any day. And it's a good reminder. And that's why we need to do some more resiliency efforts that, you know, we're pushing five things for, I'm calling them the five keys to municipal recovery in the legislature this year. One is to, um, we've just been talking about helping out with the loss, uh, the losses. And that comes in two places. So I guess it's two. Relief from local match from FEMA assistance and revenue replacement. So one and two. The third is reimburse municipalities for flood-related tax abatements. So some people don't know this. If your house has been substantially damaged in a flood, uh, you can go, or your business, you can go to the town and ask for an abatement on your taxes, meaning you can ask them to lower your taxes because your property is not usable or is not usable, you know, comparably usable as it was before the flooding. Uh, municipalities can abate both your local taxes and your education taxes. And so if your property has been really badly damaged and you're having trouble making tax payments, or if you need to put that money towards helping your house, rebuild your house, Go talk to your select board. Go talk to your uh, town. Ask them for an abatement. Um, we're, ask, we're actually asking the legislature to fund those abatements this year because if the town abates those taxes to the Ed Fund, they still have to pay the Ed Fund. Hmm. So uh, we're asking for that. And then the, the fourth one is, you know, flood. there's this thing called the Flood Resilient Communities Fund. Uh, Post-Irene, uh, the legislature funded with some ARPA money, some federal infrastructure money, a fund that helps towns do mitigation efforts. I was talking to one town manager down in Londonderry. They did, with FEMA money, a buyout of somebody's home. It took nine years. 
They just finished it right before this flooding. This Flood Resilient Communities Fund actually can do it in a couple of years, really fix it. And then finally, uh, the last thing we're asking for, the last key to municipal recovery is, you know, our towns need some help from VEM, the Vermont Emergency Management folks, and from the regional planning commissions to respond to disasters, and they need some more resources. Yeah. Um one of the, you know, one of the uh, vexing problems um, that has been created uh, by uh, the July flood. Uh, I, I keep I keep driving by um, the old Sterling Market on Route 15 in Johnson, and um, I worry about that community. Uh, uh, number one, because it's a college town, and some of those kids live off campus, um, and they go to the grocery store. Except that now they got to go to uh, Morrisville, right? And um, uh, is there is there anything in Johnson uh, that you know of that is is making progress toward uh, putting a grocery store in that location or making the existing location a little more palatable to uh, to a prospective grocer? Yeah, I certainly have heard some conversations about it, and it really that that is one of those big vulnerabilities. And that town has bent over backwards to try to make that grocery store work. If you remember uh, some flooding in, uh, I think, even pre-Irene, you know, the Pomerleau family made a big investment in that mall trying to flood harden it, put up some flood walls, things along those lines. And clearly the flooding just keeps getting worse uh, and keeps finding its way in. Uh, <laughs> nature finds a way. Uh, so I, I do I do know there's a lot of community and economic development experts at ACCD, at the Regional Planning Commission, at the Regional um, uh, uh, Economic Development Corporation, and within the town and village trying to find some solutions there. But I, I'm just not up to speed enough to know what the latest is. Um, the flood uh, occurred, uh, the July flood occurred, um, uh, and wiped out some some homes at a time when we already had a housing crisis in this state um, your um, your initiatives on housing uh, would would help how yeah well the number one thing I have observed since I started doing community and economic development about 20 years ago is the cost of housing is simply out of control I mean we we're spending nearly a half million dollars a unit uh, in subsidized housing. So a half million dollars to build, you know, a five to 500 to a thousand square foot one bedroom apartment. Uh, to me, that means you cannot uh, build your way out of this by just giving people more money, giving the state more money, giving the state nonprofits more money. That cannot be the only thing we're focused on. And so the league kind of teamed up with a bunch of other organizations and said, you need to deregulate. Um, this state has a statewide land use law, it's called Act 250, that absolutely serves as a barrier and a duplicative layer of, um, of permitting, but also an, a, another bite of the apple for anybody who is a NIMBY who says, I don't want that house built in my backyard. Municipalities spend years doing land use planning. They do zoning uh, plans. They put. They decide where you can and can't build X, Y, and Z. They decide where to build infrastructure. Then if you want to build a house, you go to the town and you have to get a permit. Then after you do that, you have to go to the state and you have to get a permit. Then those two things have to be coordinated. Then people can appeal those. So one of the big things we're saying is let's just deduplicate 
the permitting process. In places where we want growth to happen, like a downtown, a designated downtown, a designated village, let's just say no more active 50 permit jurisdiction. That will expedite housing development, hopefully reduce the cost of housing development. And at the same time, let's be clear, there are going to be, have to be places that we say we don't want development, and therefore it's going to become harder to develop those things. Right. So we're really pushing for a, a, a grand bargain there to say, let's say yes to housing in certain places. I say perhaps we could say 5% of the state is a place where we can build housing. Uh, that would be uh, about, uh, I think, 10 times more land than we currently uh, have designated places. Yeah. Uh, but it yeah. would still only be 5%. So let's do 5% for the people. <laughs> okay. Uh, Ted Brady has been our guest. Uh, he is the executive director of the Vermont League of Cities and Towns. Ted, thank you so much for being with us and explaining what VLCT is doing in the legislature to try and make this flood situation better. This is Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV.